Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Let It Roll blogger Ed Legg joins Nate to get meta and talk about the method, mission, and meaning of Let It Roll. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. We've got a very special episode today. I'm going to be the subject of the interview, and I'm going to be questioned by the Freebird Yeller, who's been blogging on our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Ed Legg, welcome. Thanks, Nate. Great to be here. And before I let you start, I want you to explain why you're called the Freebird Yeller. Well, I may not be the first person who ever yelled Freebird when Ronnie Van Zant said, what song is it you want to hear? But I am the first person that most people have heard yelling that when Ronnie asked that question in the live album, One More From The Road. That is the first thing you hear. The first free bird you hear is me and my buddies, Joel and Jim. So I'm writing a book about it. Hopefully I'll be done with it soon. A brush with greatness that's well worth celebrating. So, Ed, you're going to interview me about the Let It Roll podcast. Let it rip. Yes, sir. Well, how and when did you start? When did you actually and where did Let It Roll begin? I went to a book signing at Book People here in Austin uh, for my friend Ed Ward's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1. And I had been looking around for a podcast to do that had nothing to do with mixed martial arts, which is my day job. And um, it occurred to me that interviewing Ed would be an excellent podcast. So I, uh, when I got my book autographed, I asked him if he'd be interested, and he was open to it. And we kept talking, and we did it. Awesome. Well, you you obviously, I think part of what drew me to, to the podcast was your obvious aptitude for the music of the what I'll call the rock era. I know you're a little younger than a boomer, but you seem to embrace the, the you know, Holy Trinity, Beatles, Stones, Dylan. And I can I know you've you've talked about being a musician yourself. So is it it's true that you've you've this is obviously a passion for you. 
It is, although not to the degree it was when I was younger, um, you know, in high school and early college or when I was flunking out of college and playing in bands, you know, I thought I wanted yeah. music to be my life. And uh, it wasn't a very good choice for me. A manifest lack of musical talent was just the first uh, big hurdle there. Um, and I had been an obsessive follower of trends and what was in the magazines and the fanzines and what my friends were talking about and always trying to buy the newest, coolest record. And I just quit that cold turkey in 91 or 92 and made a point of not following the trends and not keeping up um, basically until I started the podcast up and then I've been kind of catching up. And, and, and I went back and filled in some of the blanks. But um, and I And I had stayed obsessed with music and would have entire years where I would do nothing but listen to the Beatles or listen to the Rolling Stones Beggar's Banquet album. Um, yeah, so I had some very deep focus and some serious obsession with the British invasion era. Um, but I, I grew up kind of in the, the eighties hardcore. Not, I wasn't, I was too wussy to be a hardcore, but you know, the kind of SST bands, Susker do meet puppets, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then when I got into college, I got into the butthole surfers and Slayer and that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Well, you, you obviously, I mean, you, you've absorbed a ton of it because you talk with a lot of authority and I don't mean in a bad way, but you, you, you seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of this stuff. And then I say that because I, I pride myself on that, but you, uh, you're in kind of your own orbit. Would you say that's true? I mean, not that you're in your own orbit, but you, clearly you've absorbed a lot of this. I have not everybody gift. your age does. I have a yeah. gift for memorizing trivia really easily and dates and names <laughs> and stuff. So, you know, history yeah. was always really easy for me and I'm really interested yeah. in musical history. And so, you know, if I read something a few times and listen to it, I usually retain it fairly well. Um, I'm pushing my limits yeah. by getting into uh, one of the functions of the show. I really enjoy learning to appreciate music that I didn't appreciate initially. Like it took me years to dig Rod Stewart in the faces or Rod Stewart with Jeff Beck. But once I had that breakthrough, it was a really exciting, fun thing. And now I'm kind of pursuing that with opera and electronic dance music and some different things I hadn't appreciated before. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do is just to skim across the surface of music history and and dig everything I hear that I can. Cool. This is my my last, I hope, uh, book music music book nerd question. Um, were you have you always been interested in the how and why rock and roll or how and why cultural music happens, or is that a curiosity that grew out of you talking to Ed Ward? I, having been in some spectacularly unsuccessful bands and having to figure out, like for us being from the Texas Panda handle and moving to Austin and just getting anybody to come to our shows took quite a bit of calculating. (laughs) How does this work? You know? And so I started a fanzine just to cover bands that I hoped to open for and did a quite a bit of scheming like that. I got a gig, um, booking bands at the club that booked all the local punk bands. So of course we got plenty of sweet gigs. So, you know, I figured out that there was a calculation element to it. Uh, when I was playing in bands and then decades of working in politics and public affairs, I got much 
you know, my obsession was how do political campaigns win? How does stuff work? And so it was pretty natural that to apply that to music and then, and then getting to work with Ed and learn from Ed, his method of cultural, of looking at music as a, through a cultural lens, not just music or musicians, not just an aesthetic lens, but the cultural thing that really, that really helped. And, and so that's become, you know, the focus of the show is, is why are some artists massively successful in their own time? Why do some artists only become popular later? Why do some people never make a popular impact and yet their music has a sort of depth charge impact later down the road? That kind of stuff is what I'm fascinated with. Sure. Well, did, so when did you decide, were you, were you taught in the middle of, of the, the book interview with the first book interview with, Ed or the or the Bloomfield book, were you going along with that and suddenly thinking, hmm, maybe I should keep doing this because it's I'm getting a lot of information, or did did you see it going in, or or later thinking about it, or how did you decide to keep going beyond Ed Ward? Let's play a song and then I'll come back and tell you. And this is Paul Williams, the Hucklebuck. Williams, The Hucklebuck, and that's an R&B song from the late 40s that Ed Ward introduced me to, or I was introduced to through his book. And it's one I've become obsessed with because uh, it's actually based on a song originally written by Charlie Parker. And I'm really fascinated by that whole split where jazz splits off into one half goes bebop and the other half goes R&B and later rock and roll. So your question was, um, you know, the original plan was just to do a series about Ed's book. And I hadn't really thought about how to continue it. And it was only when I had some really strong encouragement from Steph, my producer, um, and also uh, two of my best friends, Jeff Parker and uh, my late friend, Danny Park, um, a.k.a. Danny Ray Texas, who was a singer in the band I was in, The Nipple Five. Mm-hmm. Um, and gotcha. they enjoyed the show so much that it encouraged me to keep doing it. It was really hard for me to do at first. It was a, it was a new challenge. And then... I didn't do the things that I had hoped to do to promote the show. So, you know, it didn't make the splash that I had hoped for initially, which was probably kind of grandiose on my part. Um, so I was pretty discouraged. But when some people that I really respected were very encouraging, I decided to go ahead and do it. And then from there, it was like kind of filling in some gaps that Ed and I hadn't covered from his book and also talking about Michael Bloomfield because that was his other book. And then from there, I had a challenge of filling out six other episodes to get to a second season. So, um, you know, I picked a couple of bands that I just personal fetishes of mine, like uh, the Moby Grape book and the Butthole Surfers book. And mm-hmm. those are groups that I don't necessarily think are massively historically significant, but those are personal favorites mm-hmm. of mine. So, so I want to talk about those. And then um, I, I made contact with Paul Trinka and uh, because I'm a Brian Jones obsessive and he wrote the definitive biography of Brian Jones and happened to have a Facebook connection mm-hmm. with him. So, um, and then from there, you know, since I had kind of talked to Ed about Ed Ward about all his books, I, I, I just tried again. And Paul Trinka was very generous with his time and willing to talk about his entire, uh, written book collection. So that's kind of how it, it continued. 
Well, was there at some point, I mean, was this, did it, I, I you've already kind of said this, but, you know, did, did talking to Ed um, open up some vistas of thought and, and, and information that, that kind of surprised you and, and motivated you onward or, or, or was, um, was there one, one thing that happened talking to Ward that, that kind of opened it up? You all, you kind of all just, you already answered that with the song you just played, but, um, because you cl- you clearly have, you know, it's prodigious. You know, you you've you've continued to to work on this and with some energy, and did 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 some about that original Edward experience serve as your big bang? Um, it took me a while to figure out what I had learned from Ed. Um, I obviously really enjoyed the book and. I had enjoyed his earlier uh, history of rock and roll that he wrote for Rolling Stone in the 80s. He wrote one third of their official history of rock and roll, roughly covering the mm-hmm. same period he covered in his first volume. So I'd always had great respect for his ability to craft a narrative and, and really enjoyed mm-hmm. reading his stuff. But I didn't understand his method of looking at it as a cultural history where you focus on the audience and you. Edward has basically a methodology for spotting scenes that are likely to produce important music. You know, you look for outsiders who are seizing on a new technology, um, who have a lively underground scene with maybe independent record labels or some kind of audience, some way that it's outside corporate control. And it's a really solid method. And that's why you know, his work really excels when he's talking about the birth of rhythm and blues or the birth of rock and roll or the birth of reggae. And I'd love to read him on the birth of hip hop or the birth of electronic dance music, which are two things that he's really mm-hmm. fascinated with. So it took me a while to figure out, oh, this is what he's doing and and okay. apply that to other things. I, I'm kind of a slow student, but I did eventually, I think, pick it up to some extent, although I'm sure Ed would laugh um, at the thought of me understanding his methods. <laughs> <laughs> well, had you had you already read a lot of books besides Ed's? I mean, you've mentioned a couple times that you're a music book nerd. I mean, did you do you have a big library or was it something you were always reading or? or um, yeah, as you go ahead. I've, I've always I've always been a big music reader, music magazines. I've always yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a I'm a very poor musician and it's very unnatural for me to learn about music. It took me a long time to learn how to appreciate music just by listening to it. Um, which I I'm really glad that I had the experience of of learning to play guitar as well as I did because my ability to listen to music just improved exponentially, but I've always mm-hmm. learned about music a lot faster if I can read about it at the same time I'm listening to it. And it's just a perfect mm-hmm. compliment. That's what I like to do is read and listen to music. And I, I read a lot of history and a lot of politics and other things, but I've always read a, a ton of music. And so I've, you know, read most of the major books on the Beatles, all of the major books on the stones, tons of stuff about punk rock, hip hop, jazz, et cetera, et cetera. And in the course of doing the show, I've kind of expanded into blues and and um, you know ragtime and, and other periods that I hadn't looked at before and EDM, which was totally new to me um, until until just recently. So yeah, it, it's it's something I've always done, but I've started doing it in a much more obsessive and systematic way. Like currently, <laughs> this is like a, a, a perpetual graduate course. Like it's like I'm in graduate yeah. school. I'm constantly reading, and way behind on my assignments. 
Fascinating. You're, you're kind of you're answering ahead some of my questions, but do you do you um do you have a feel yet for how much of the how and why popular music happens as as that you've nabbed? I mean, do you have any estimation, or are you kind of just still flying? You're going to fill up that uh, fishing net as as full as you can, and then go back and look. Well, uh, you know the original series was you know 12 episodes covering the the birth of rock and roll up to 1963 mm-hmm. and and I'd like to repeat that again like I've interviewed Peter Doggett quite a few times his excellent book Electric Shock which is a history of recorded music so I've kind of gone mm-hmm. with Peter to the pre to the beginnings of recorded music and I'd like to get Peter back and talk about the stuff where Ed leaves off you know pick up in the 70s and go through to now Peter Doggett on on the kind of rock and pop music front. Um, we've done the the eight part uh, hip hop evolution series, and we're going to have another eight episodes uh, catching up with the next two seasons of Hip Hop Evolution uh, from Netflix. And uh, we're working. I just started working. We're two episodes into a projected twenty episode here series on uh, DJ music, which includes disco, yeah. reggae, hip hop, uh, based on the book. Um, and last night, a DJ saved my life by the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And I'm working on that with a, a colleague from my mixed martial arts world, Ryan Harkness, who's also a club DJ. And Steph actually oh, pops cool. in and out on some of those episodes. And so uh, doing those things, I've uh, been talking to James Porter, who's a music writer that I'm friends with on Facebook. And he and I are going to do a series on uh, eight parts based on the Ken Burns country music uh, documentary series. Ted Joy's History of Jazz is coming out with a new edition, and I'm talking to Ted. I'm hoping to get as much of Ted's time as I can to do that, and then probably we'll need yeah. somebody else to fill in the blank. So, you know, that's that's kind of the goals. But then I want to go back and fill in, like I've been doing with these individual episodes, and eventually uh, uh, we'll list all the episodes of Let It Roll in sort of chronological order is is the goal. So we'll have these big frameworks by genre, and then and then we'll have the special episodes about specific artists or specific albums or specific scenes and places that will kind of add depth. I know I'll never get to cover everything I'd like to or want to, but if I can build those big frameworks and then, then I can pop in and out. Well, did you, did you know going in that you're really, you ask really good questions that yield a lot of information? And I and I say that because Dolly Parton's uh, biographer said that too. And I, that's about the point that I noticed it. And I mean, I was already noticing it, but then you start asking questions that. And I mean, I'm a longtime print media journalist and and done PR and a bunch of other stuff, and certainly curious about this this what you're doing. But um, you ask you ask really good questions, and um, that yeah, that's a that's an important distinction. Um, I hadn't, I, I hadn't had a lot of experience doing <laughs> interviews before this. I, I, my day job is managing uh, very popular websites about mixed martial arts and pro wrestling and boxing, and I worked in yeah. public affairs and politics before that. So I had done some interviewing, but never really at this extent. So thank you um, for saying for for the compliments. I I uh, just try to ask intelligent questions and and I do feel like I'm getting better at it. Um, have had some good interviews lately that I'm particularly proud of. But I still you know 
it, it's so much dependent on the chemistry with the, the the person that you're speaking to. So you know, not every interview mm-hmm. is as as great as as I had hoped it would be. But let me introduce another song, and this is um, uh, a personal favorite of mine. This is Moby Grapes, Omaha. And that was Moby Grapes Omaha. And um, that's a band that I spent like a full five, six years hunting for the record because the Rolling Stone record guide gave their first album five stars and it had been out of print forever and and uh, you know i spent like six years hunting it finally got my hands on it i got i, I got it and richard hell and the voidoids blank generation album the same day which i had been hunting for those two albums ever since i got my hands on the rolling stone record guide so like seven years of my teens those were the very first things i looked for every time i went to a new record store get them both in the same day and i'm underwhelmed by both of them you know like or overwhelmed oh, I mean, wow i just, I, wow. I just couldn't process it you know the, the, the same thing happened when i finally <laughs> got my hands on a big star album you know it's like you you have all these oh, wow. expectations of what you think this is going to be and it's not anything like that mm-hmm. so it took me years mm-hmm. decades to really fall in love with moby grape like i figured out that oh well this is a cool album and i'd listen to it sometimes but i was never obsessed with it then in 2007 in the brief window when all their uh, uh catalog was available on sunday's reissues I started hearing the bonus tracks and I figured out, oh, wow, this wasn't just a band that had one great album. And then and then turns out it wasn't that talented. This was a massively, massively talented band. So I spent the entire year of 2013 just absolutely obsessed with Moby Grape and trying to reconstruct an alternate version of their second album and and everything. So before I was doing this very broad skim across music, I was doing these ridiculous months and years long obsessions with single acts Moby Grape and then the Jeff Beck group and which like I don't cool. expect anybody else to like those bands you know but but for whatever reason <laughs> I spent months and months just obsessing with, and mostly in terms of what could have gone differently to make these bands successful which very much leads into the whole let it roll you know why do some groups yeah. succeed some artists fail et cetera, et cetera. Well, I probably I'm probably a bad person to judge this, but um, I I can't think of there are a lot there are a lot of podcasts online, probably thousands that are less interesting than the Jeff Bud group. I mean, that that's one I'd be interested in. But again, you know, I'm I'm probably the the I mean, I'm the, the perfect uh, specimen of, of listener because this this is a question I've been asking myself about what is this thing? Because it's it's had an effect on me. What What is it about author talking to authors that seems to, well, you, you know, you're, you know, I've already paid you enough compliments, but I mean, and I could keep doing it, but I don't want the listeners to think I'm just sucking up. Um, but what is it about authors that there's something about talking to them that's more informative than actually talking to the artists themselves? What, well, what is it? Do you have an uh, idea about that? To me, it's the distance, like, you know, I've I've covered mixed martial arts uh, for a decade now for my, for a living, and I developed really early on a policy of not talking to fighters. Um, I, you know, mm-hmm. people, people at work for me talk to fighters all the time, but but 
for what I wanted to do, I wanted to maintain my perspective as a fan and just talk about things you could see on TV and read, not having mm-hmm. behind the scenes knowledge and trying to preserve that innocence mm-hmm. as long as I could. And so it's somewhat similar. Like I, I want to talk to people who have some distance. Um, one of the, I've done two interviews that were so disastrous I, I couldn't use them. And one of those was with a writer I, I, I really, really, really admire. And I hope to go back and talk to him again. But one of the issues was that he knew the band in question quite well. And they had uh-huh. a very tragic story. And I was yeah. treated in an analytical way. And I realized uh-huh. after the fact that I was upsetting him because I was talking about his dead friend in a not particularly sensitive way and so i don't want to get in that situation with a musician definitely so you know i want to talk to people who can have some analytic distance from the subject matter so that's why i'm talking to authors rather than musicians gotcha what and so what keeps you going back to well ward i kind of understand because you've told that story trinka um gordon goya i mean those are some guys you've talked to more than once um you know elijah walt i mean is it just because they're they've covered more than one thing, um, or they they their their reporting is more revealing. What is it about them that keeps you going back? Because they're I've listened to more than one interview of the interviews with all those guys, and um, they do add to this this tale. Um, it's it's always a combination of how easy are they to work with, how interested are they in being on the show, you know, how available are they, and how insightful is their work. Like like some of the writers are great writers, and they just tell a narrative without doing a lot of really mm-hmm. second level analysis. And some of these guys, yeah. I would put Elijah Wald and and Ted Joya, especially in that category, just really blow my mind with their insights. And I'm mm-hmm. hoping. And, and I'm very much trying to use Wald's methodology. Um, his key insight to me is to try to look at this music as much as you can from the perspective of the audience, of its audience at the time, or at least you should be aware yeah. of how it was seen at the time by the people who knew it best. You know, like, yeah. like, like I have an impression of certain bands from the 60s, but when I talk to somebody who was actually there and saw the bands live, I'm not going to argue with them about, say, Big Brother and the Holding Company blowing the 13th floor elevators off the stage in San Francisco. I, I wasn't there. I couldn't see it. You know, but people who were there and saw these shows know these things. Um, and I have to respect that, even though I also feel like the 13th floor elevators albums just, you know, really crush what Big Brother and the Holding Company put down on wax to me as a listener. And, and, mm-hmm. and so, you know, Wald's insights about let's look at Robert Johnson the way he was seen by blues audiences in the thirties was just mind blowing, you know, and, and then his, his mm-hmm. analysis of how, you know, the, the, and he admitted it was trolling the title, how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll is, is, is clearly yeah. intended to provoke, but what he's really talking about, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a very good book title is how a set of circumstances that arose in the mid sixties ended the organic synthesis process that had produced ragtime jazz rhythm and blues rock and roll and rock and you know things changed after that and and i think he's right about that and i but mostly i really yeah. enjoyed his attack on the history of it and you know um and if you listen to interviews he's he's not an easy 
interview. <laughs> it's not easy to. Book, I would agree so. with that. And and, um, <laughs> and I wasn't very good at the at that point, you know. And I hope to interview him again. He's got many more books that are just as fascinating. He's got a great book on the dozens, which is you know the kind of competitive speech. Um, that that sort of leads to hip hop and then you know another book yeah. on narco cordos yep. and and you know uh-huh. I, I I I just have visions of him ripping my Spanish pronunciation to pieces but <laughs> <laughs> but I hope to I hope to have him back on the show again and, and talk about more of that stuff but more importantly I want to take his insights and apply them to everything I'm looking at and same with Ted Joya his his music is subversive history really to me. The fact that he's willing to just come out and say music is magic and this is this incredibly powerful force we do not understand and and never can understand and that some of these patterns are going to repeat over and over again that's the kind of thing that helps me build a, a framework and, I, and I, my ambitious goal is to put that all together into into a, a framework that then i can build a narrative a very broad narrative around and i apologize for mispronouncing his name so joy is also the one that's written about it being subversive right yeah yeah i mean that music is inherently subversive and that there's always this struggle um you know and and that's his most recent book um and i interviewed him twice about that one book and then he's got birth and death of the cool um which i interviewed him about and which was another totally mind-blowing concept the idea that cool was something that came to exist in the 20th century and then ended in the 20th century. But let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. And we're back. Cool. Um, So you, you, at some point you changed the show's goal from the how and why rock and roll happens to how and why popular music happens. Did was, when was that? I I go for it either way. I, I probably would be the, the rock and roll happening guy, but I also hit because of the show, partly see where it's all part of a bigger continuum of music that people listen to. And I was, I was, you know, I'm a boomer, I'm a late boomer. So I really didn't have that Beatle moment with Ed Sullivan, but I was um, old enough to experience a version of it uh, with the monkeys. And then just with what happened in the late seventies, late sixties. And, um, and it, it was there was a there is a difference, you know, that moment when it's subversive and cool and um suddenly you're in on something that your parents aren't in on, which is hard to find now. Um in fact I'm probably in on things that my sons aren't in on. But um when when did you switch to popular music and, and you know what made you do that? I think I know the answer, but lay it on me. I think that was at the third season. Um, it might have been mm-hmm. the fourth. Um, but And it really came from understanding Ed's methods, Ed Ward's methods, you know, even though his books are history of rock and roll. What he's really describing is how do music scenes happen and, and then covering mm-hmm. certain music scenes that happen in these periods of time. And also, you know, my late sixties was the late eighties when we had, um, you know, a succession of musical revolutions. None of them were as big as the rock revolution of the late sixties, but you know, we had the speed metal underground and I, and I was lucky enough to dabble in that we had hip hop exploding mm-hmm. and I was, and I was, uh, very much into hip hop at the time, you know, in the golden age of hip hop. And we had the punk rock, underground go commercial and ultimately you know the triumph of Kurt Cobain and and, yep. and then 
seeing the way that grunge taking punk rock mainstream, I thought it, I had this naive idea that it would be like, this will make the cool, the, the, not the cool kids, but not cool, the, the jocks and frat boys and stuff. If, if punk rock is popular, this will make them cooler. But what actually happened was the, the cool clubs were just flooded with jocks and who stayed just as stupid and, and <laughs> dreadful and nothing it's athletes, but just, you know, that's a shorthand. And, and so I sort of mm-hmm. view the whole idea of trying to popularize underground scenes. It's, it's a fool's errand, but it's sort of an inevitable thing. So, you know, it's a natural thing, but, but seeing that the, the, the aftermath of that and, and my own personal experience of, and it's not that, that we failed to become rock stars. It's that my personal conduct and my goals were totally hedonistic. I mean, I, I wanted to be a rock star for all the wrong reasons, you know, for sex and drugs mm. and money and power. And that's just totally mm. awful. And, and it has bad outcomes. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, when I, when I had some corporate success, I very much, lived through that and, and fell into every leapt headfirst in every pitfall that a young man with money and sure. success can get into. Yep. And I recognize what kind yep. of poison that was. And if you look at the actuarial yep. tables of grunge bands, I mean, whether it's Kurt Cobain, Lane Stanley, the, you know, Scott William from Stone Temple Pilots, all the way to Chris Cornell, it's just like, wow, was that a mistake? And wow, did that have bad outcomes for everybody? <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, um, anyway, so I'm kind of trying to share that perspective. I'm not trying to, put a bummer on it you know i don't i don't come out and say yeah. well you know i think the rock and roll lifestyle is an evil lie but i do um and mm-hmm. you know and and i mean and to me it's like you know i think in the 60s when you when you read stuff in the 60s and maybe you saw this firsthand but you know it's like when i when you read stanley booth's true adventures of the rolling stones and, and you read what keith and mick were saying to him before altamont they really thought they could save the world through music and mm-hmm. you know it took stanley booth 15 years to write that book because he was so heartbroken because it was manifestly a failure but he had really believed that and yeah you know to me it's like if rock and roll was going to save the world we would be in a much better place right now because the Beatles did conquer the world. The stones did conquer the world. And, and yet it didn't make a bit of difference in terms of stopping the war machines or ending pollution or any of that stuff. So I'm kind of like looking at this stuff as, you know, where did that go wrong? And, 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 you know, what kind of poison lies have we fallen for? Well, and I I was, I was about to turn 20 when, when I would say that it swung back um, from what was happening in the sixties. And it's been interesting to talk to my friends who are still around and 20, 40 years later, because for some reason it seemed like um, it was going to last a while. And it did. And I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. That's, that's a a really good observation because it's true. Um, You, what, what, um, how bit, how far through the sandwich are we, or do you have any idea? I mean, are you feel like you're halfway through or three fourths and, and, or you feel like you're just scratching at it? I definitely feel like I'm just scratching at it. But at a certain point after I do these historical series, the DJ series, and, and, uh, you know, we're working on a 20 
episode yeah. series for that. I'd ultimately like yeah. to make it like a 60 episode series and cover Simon Reynolds energy flash book, which covers the whole uh, acid house period, you know, the, the late eighties and nineties once, once techno and house music go from Chicago and Detroit to England and then, and then blow up, you know, yeah. and then, and then Michelangelo Matos's, um, the underground is massive, which describes how EDM finally became a massive pop success in the U.S. You know, I'd like to cover that stuff. I'd like to, I'd like to get into, you know, cover 21st century music to some extent. I need, I haven't covered at all the whole Napster SoundCloud or the Napster MP3, you know, implosion of the music industry. But that's a whole big thing I need to talk about. And also, I've touched yeah. on how the music industry fucked things up in the 90s at least insofar as alternative music but I want to talk about what they did to country yeah. music as well and and you know <laughs> Nelson George has a great book on the, the death of rhythm and blues that's about the 80s but mm -hmm. you know that's wow. you know very much you know Nelson George is my number one target to get on the show and um, you know uh, anybody who has a contact with him please hook me up but um you know, uh, th that yeah. that kind of analysis of how the corporate monster mangles and mishandles music is something that I want to talk about. So I don't know that I'll ever finish this, but I, I, at a certain point, I'm just going to stop. And there's there there is a thesis sentence that I'm working on, and I want to yeah. do a short series that will hopefully boil everything I've learned down into, you know, a 12 or 24 episode sequence um, that that will kind of apply the lessons that I've learned from this big historical sweep, but we'll see if I get there. Sure. So where you've kind of answered my, my last kind of my last question, you've nailed a lot of important authors and their work and you just mentioned one you'd like to get or If you, what, where do you go from here? I mean, what's, what's coming and what, what, what can we look for besides what you've already said, which is quite a bit. Um, yeah. I mean, those are the, the it's a pretty ambitious uh, sequence of stuff. Um, but there's definitely more authors uh, I want to get. One, one, another series that I'm working on uh, with a musician from Baltimore named Brooks Long, we're about to start doing a series that we're kind of informally calling the David Ritz Book Club. And David Ritz is... Huh the king ghostwriter yeah. like if he's, mm -hmm. he's you know ghostwritten so many autobiographies and he's written major mm -hmm. biographies of you know marvin gay and aretha franklin and others not and i had the honor of talking to, to mr ritz once um but I, i'm never going to be able he's a very busy guy i mean he's writing two books a year oh. and, and, and he's doing oh, really? major you know when and when he promotes a book yeah. he's he's looking to do the times and and npr and stuff oh, like yeah. that so it's, mm -hmm. it's very hard for me to get his time and when he's got 30 books I want to talk about, you know, so so um, hopefully Brooks and I can do that justice. We're about to tape an episode about Ray Charles. So, um, you know, I want to keep filling in those gaps. I want to talk about the great American sure. songwriters. I did an episode on Irving Berlin, but, you know, I still want to talk about Gershwin. I want to talk about Cole Porter. I want to talk about the, the movie, movie music. Um, I want to talk about, you know, The Wizard of Oz. I want to talk about soundtrack music, you know, um, Maura Cohn, who did the spaghetti western soundtracks or uh, the guy who oh, did yeah. the psycho soundtrack you know and, and howard goodall has a great series on um i want to do a series covering howard goodall's western music history or bbc history of classical music i can't remember what it's called exactly but i want to i want to cover that with somebody i want to cover opera with somebody i feel like my story starts when they first start selling tickets to see shows mm -hmm. which is which mm -hmm. is opera in the you know 1500s or 1600s and and concert music. So I want to cover that stuff. I yeah. want to talk about Franz Liszt and the mania around him. 
and and also you know obviously african american music is immensely important to world music but i also want to give european music its due because you know um we're singing in English generally and pop songs that we're talking about are, are songs in English. And the song form is something that the Western Europeans developed and perfected. The English language mm-hmm. is obviously European and the, and the harmonic structures are Western European. So I want to, I want to establish mm-hmm. that this is a European form that's been massively, yeah. massively influenced by this cultural collision with Africans. And, and also I want to talk about Cuban music. Um, Ned Sublet mm-hmm. has some incredible books about Cuba and its music and New Orleans and its music. And so I'm going to have Ned on this year. Um, and hopefully, I, I, I don't know how much I'll be able to have him back, but the influence of Cuban music is absolutely immense. It's a, it's a total... Uh, you know, tip of the iceberg thing where, where it's just a massive, yeah. massively important thing. And I've, I've only recently begun to comprehend that, you know, I want to talk about Egyptian music or Arabic music. I want to talk about, you know, Brazilian music and, and Indian music. And so the ambition is just insane. Mm-hmm. And then I want to cover that stuff, but let's, let's uh, cue up one more song. And this is another personal favorite okay. band of mine. This is uh, the butthole cool. surfers doing Gary Floyd. Butthole Surfers sing a song called Gary Floyd in honor of Gary Floyd, the singer for the Dicks, two Austin bands. Um, I never got to see the Dicks while they were in Austin, but I did get to see the Butthole Surfers. It was absolutely a life-changing religious experience the first time I saw them uh, in 88 or 89. And, you know, I, anyway, that, that's very important. And I, and I was very happy to get sure. to speak with their biographer early on. Did Gabby really drive a school bus from Austin to Athens? Have you ever Gibby? heard that story? Oh, yeah. Gibby, Gibby yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I don't know yeah, if it was Gibby. a school bus, <laughs> but they, they, did, they did migrate um, to Athens, and they were headquartered okay. out of Athens for a year, 18 months or something like that, and recorded uh, cream corn from the socket of Davis and um, Rembrandt Pussy Horse there, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I won't. I won't tell you. You know, you your discipline has disciplined me, so I'm not even going to share the probably apocryphal story about um, Gibby driving a school bus. But um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a it's it's a blast listening to the show. When did you start saying put your earbuds in and enjoy? Because I think that's a really uh, telling thing to say. Because it is enjoyable. It's a lot of good good information. The stuff you're given. Probably tell us. I think I came up with that for the second season, first or second season, second season, not the first. It was the second. Second. Thank you, Steph. So yeah, that's 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 when I popped that one in there. Yeah, and well, you you, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. You you have a natural way of. I mean, you are you do seem to know that you're you're putting something out that's got some interest and substance. Um, You know, as as encyclopedia encyclopedic as you are, I mean, it's um you're doing it in digestible chunks. So, um, you know, if you're interested, if this is something 
if music is something someone's interested in, you're going to get a, a nice taste, a nice chunk of information from each of these episodes. And yeah. Uh, you seem I mean, to know it. I, I realize that it's <laughs> fairly dry and boring that I'm doing a very academic thing. <laughs> um, yes. You know, Not to and, me, but... Yeah, but but I'm, I mean I'm I'm trying to get people who want to seriously think about this stuff and 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 mm-hmm. uh, I want to make it as fun and entertaining as possible. But fundamentally, uh, music is kind of my outlet for my frustrated academic side. And so, you know, music is something that that like I I, I think it was Billy Joel that hosted uh, the Beatles Channel on Sirius FM one weekend, and and it was very telling that somebody like Billy Joel, who's a gifted musician, like I'm not personally a big fan of his, but it was obvious that this guy is a gifted musician because the way he talks about music, he basically has to start playing it really quickly. He's like this song and it's like this and he sings it or he plays it. It's this, mm-hmm. you know, and so for somebody like Billy Joel or John Lennon, it's music is just intuitive and they have this intuitive mastery of it. I don't have that at yep. all. To me, it's this inexplicable force that I'm drawn to, that I'm obsessed by, but I cannot intuitively understand it i mean i did eventually learn to become a kind of semi-competent punk metal guitar player um if i had plenty of time to practice the same song over and over again etc but to me it's something i can only understand if i can really dissect it and read about it and listen to it over and over again and talk to people who understand it better than me so it's mm-hmm. kind of my my attempt to tame this beast that has you know hypnotized and had mastery over me my entire adult life and a lot of people and and almost like a spell and i've seen it macro and micro because i um lived through the early to mid 60s and i lived in athens georgia and between 78 and 82 and so i saw it in a in a scene way too and that was um in both ways Really, you're you're you know you I'll I'll only say that you're nailing a lot of stuff that I've puzzled over for for decades. So, um, which I think that's everything I've got. I mean, I this has been great talking to you, and I'm I'm sure I'll have some more questions. I I'd love to ask you who the band was whose author you interviewed, but I I because I'm a journalist, <laughs> I know I'm supposed to. But I also respect you know you want to get them back on the show, and I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated to hear. Um, I'd love to, I mean, that's, I can't wait till you get that, that person. Cause I think he'll, he'll, uh, he'll tell you some things. I imagine. <laughs> I, I hope so. There's, there's two authors that, you know, we interviewed and it didn't work out and I hope to have them both back on the show, but we'll see. Wow. But thank, thanks. Ed. This okay. has been really fun. Same here. We'll, we'll do it again and I'll keep listening and I'll keep blogging. All right. Yeah. And everybody, you can read the Freebird Yeller blog on our website, the let it roll He's, blogging about most every episode we do so check it out and enjoy follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it rollcast and check out our website at let it rollpodcast.com next week nate will be back to talk 1960s los angeles the beach boys the birds and sunshine pop with andrew hickey when we return let it roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park.
It Came from Memphis, revised and updated, is published by Third Man Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.